One of the things that makes this the most effective advertising campaign in the world. So effective is the use of humor. Using humor to promote a professional development program like the Master of Advertising Effectiveness might seem unusual, but in fact, humorous advertising is among the most effective advertising. Yet the use of humor has declined considerably in recent years, which is the exact opposite of funny. To learn more about what makes advertising effective, head over to mae.academy. That's mae.academy. Hello and welcome to the Work Podcast. My name is Anne-Marie Kerwin, America's Editor, and today we're going to talk about how to be brave. Joining me today are two Chief Strategy Officers and co-chairs of the 4A Strategy Committee, DDB North America's Tomasz Konzorczyk and the Martin Agency's Elizabeth Paul. Welcome, Elizabeth and Tomasz. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi there. It's so good to have you guys here. Today, we're going to be talking about WARC's Future of Strategy Report, which is an annual report we've been doing for more than a decade, and it's based on a global survey. Thanks to a partnership with the four A's, we had the highest response from U.S. strategists that we've ever had. And this year, we're really leaning into a theme that was raised at the Cannes Lions Festival by BBDO's Martin Weigel and Rob Campbell. That is, that strategy is in need of a revolution. There's an idea that agencies and brands have gotten so wedded to marketing effectiveness frameworks that marketing has become almost a by-the-numbers exercise, very safe. But this year's Foray Stratfest, which is the annual gathering for strategy pros, is being billed as being all about the big swings, misunderstood ideas, and poorly received presentations that required perseverance because you knew it was the beginning of something exceptional something that could define a brand, set the course of a career, or push the culture forward. And Tomas and Elizabeth, you've contributed a very strong piece for this year's Future of Strategy report that urges strategists to avoid work that is just good enough and to define what winning looks like. So some might not think that marketing and advertising is an industry that requires bravery. It's not like we're running into burning buildings or jumping out of planes. So why are we talking about strategic bravery? Um, I, you raise a really good point. We are not talking about running into burning buildings, but we are talking about breaking with convention. And I think that is something that is easier said than done. You know, a, a lot of great agencies um, have staked their positioning on talking about, you know, the, the power of difference or, you know, being the one that zigs when someone else zags. But it does take courage to break with the pack. And I think there's a, a statistic that we talk a lot about um, at Martin that, that honestly should disquiet anyone who works in this industry. And it's that 84% of ads are never seen. They're somewhere between actively avoided and passively ignored, or as we talk about it, they're invisible. Um, and it's one thing to look at that and to say, we don't want to make things that are invisible. We want to make things that break through, that people talk about, that they pay attention to, and hopefully they share and they're motivated by. Um, but I actually do have a lot of compassion for people who are making the 84% of ads because conventions are conventions for a reason. There's research somewhere that says that if the beer bottle, you know, is, is backlit and there's water cascading off of it, it looks refreshing. And I, I do think in an era where there is an obsession with measuring accountability in the short term, um, and a plague of short-termism, it is brave to say, I'm going to break with the thing that will give me the paper shield, you know, of a, a, a green score. 
um, in favor of the collective knowledge and wisdom and experience of an industry and the great work that Wark has done decadally looking at effectiveness. Like often I, I find this to be an interesting conversation because the perception is that agencies don't like measurement. And I think it's really just a question of like, what metrics are we paying attention to? Because often what happens is that long-term metrics, and I'm not just talking about long-term effectiveness, I'm talking about research on what makes effective work that's been, that's been proven over decades across categories, across countries, is thrown in the trash in favor of like a very short-term metric that says something else. And so I do think it takes bravery to, to break with that um, and to go with what I would call wisdom over mm-hmm. short-term validation. Mm-hmm. I think there's a certain level of urgency to the need for bravery too. Um, I think when you look at just last 10 years in the US, for instance, last 12, 12, 12 years or so, I think it's definitely been a high growth economic environment, right? In terms of how businesses were doing and um, how you could get growth um, as a brand as a brand leader. And I think that is, that is all but, but gone now, given the inflation and the general kind of macroeconomic uncertainty. So I think it's much harder now to kind of steal share from someone else or just kind of eke out the growth if you're a number four or number five player in any category. So you have to stand out um, in order to break through and actually generate return on the, you know, the, the marketing investment that you're, that you're putting out there. Um, and I think in order to do that, um, I don't think we're saying with Elizabeth that um, you need to be rogue, right? That, uh, it's not even about being disruptive necessarily. Instead, I think it's about having the audacity to say, actually, these are some of the scientific rules of how you grow as, as, a, as a brand and as a business. Um, and a lot of that has to go against autopilot. Sometimes you have to spend more rather than like optimize the hell out of what you already have. Um, and that takes bravery, to, I think, to, to break from just what's expected, especially over the last like 10 to 10 or 12 years. You touched on something actually really interesting that I think is another factor because, you know, bravery infers that you're facing fear. And when you talked about this being like a high growth era, it's funny, like, as you said that, I was like, is it a high growth era? It doesn't feel like a high growth yeah. era. So there have been a dozen recessions since World War II. And historically, they happened every like six and a half, seven years. And so I think the at least the US economy, though, I think this is true in other parts of the world as well, are used to kind of like boom years and bust years and, and you know, a swaying back and forth. But since 2008, it, it always feels like we're on the cusp of a recession. It mm-hmm. always feels like the bottom is on the cusp of dropping out. We're always talking about the inverted yield curve and how that's always pointed to one thing and we're, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. And that does create an economic environment of fear. Um, and that does create a sense of scarcity. There's a lot of great research on what scarcity does to the human brain. You, you hyper-focus on survival in the short term. You, you can't have long-term thinking. And so I, I think there is something interesting there when you're in a perpetual, I won't say recessionary environment, I will say teetering on the edge of recessionary environment. It's all the more reason for everyone to kind of like clench and hold back and feel like now is not the time um, to, to, break with, mm-hmm. to, to break with convention. Yeah, I think that's true. It's um, being brave within your organizations and, and making that argument, right? Um, the work survey asked um, respondents if they felt their organizations encouraged them to be brave in their strategic recommendations. And 70% of strategists said, yes, my organization encourages me to be brave. But only 34% felt that their clients encouraged them to be brave. So that's what we're calling the strategic bravery gap. What yeah. do you think 
the difference in those levels of support are? I'm not surprised that that strategists feel like their agency leaders are encouraging them to be braver because I think by and large, um, agency people are students of how brands grow over time. And so yes, understand the short-term pressures because we walk it out with our, our client partners all the time. Um, but I think by and large, this is probably a little more pseudoscientific you know, than your survey. Um, you know, if you showed up at any agency and pulled, I think you would you would get ideology that braver work breaks through and that the work that gets talked about, the work that we remember is work that that doesn't just look like wallpaper. So I think agencies believe that. Um, I, I do think that marketers are under different pressures um, and I think are probably living in the numbers day to day, the short term sales goals. Um, you know, I, I was with a, a company last week in San Francisco and, and they were kind of like wringing their hands. You know, it's a retailer where they're like, we know that short term discounting is going to kill the brand, but we can't stop short term discounting because it's getting us through the month and it's getting us through the quarter. Um, and I do think that is one of the disconnects. I think marketers are used to agency people coming and pushing them to do things that they may or may not feel like they have the wherewithal organizationally to do. And those tensions are real. Like, I don't think it's just about having the right argument. Um, I don't think it's an irreconcilable difference, but I think it's a real challenge. And I think there is also an opportunity for agency people to have empathy um, for what marketers are dealing with and to figure out how to help them succeed, like how to navigate their systems, not falling on every sword, not dying, you know, for, for every idea, um, but really helping them figure out what they can get through, you know, and, and honestly, how to lead culture change inside their organizations. Like Tomash, I don't know if you run into this, but like, I, I feel like in recent years, it is more common that we will have someone come in new business where you'll have a CMO or a head of marketing. That's like, all right, I believe what you believe. I'm buying what you're selling but I'm in a marketing organization that is like very testing driven, very conservative. You know, it, it is built for invisibility. I need you to help me change the culture inside mm -hmm. my organization. And that um, CMO tenure is getting shorter and shorter. So they have a shorter window to prove their ideas. Well, I think we're also, um, I think we're coming to an end of, I think, a very prolific and passionate optimization cycle. I think we've kind of optimized the hell out of the marketing spend. And yet, I think, um, I think yet still brands are struggling to find new growth. And when you think of the word brave, in my head, I think um, it's like an emotional word, right? And I think, you know, kind of like emotions don't belong to business, like you would say, right? It's like, unless this is rational and data-driven, you really don't have your act together, right? As a, as, a, as, a, as a professional. So I think that word itself probably scares people and it mm -hmm. should not belong into a serious grown-up organization. Yet we know that 95% of our decisions are all emotionally driven. So even when you're looking at the data, ultimately you still make the call on where you believe the business should be going as a, as a marketer or as, or as a creative. So I think we have, a, we have a job on our hand to, I think, reposition the discipline of marketing a little bit, because I think it has been, I think what has made this industry, I think, worthwhile for people to have long careers in and to create some of the valuable assets in the world, you know, the brands that kind of rule to society. And it, it was the combination of, I think, a bit of an art and science and audacity and dreaming and arresting, arresting the world's imagination, with, which what this brand would stand for. And I think we've lost all of that. And I think um, to our earlier conversation, whether that's kind of the low growth period that we're going through, but we're definitely, I think, optimizing versus creating. I think marketing organizations are extracting value. They're designed to extract value versus necessarily create value. 
I think the disconnect happens also from the fact that as agencies, you know, our job is, I think, to breed and foster creative culture, to go for it, find new ways. Yet, I think if you're meeting a marketing organization that's designed to simply just extract value from the market, you have culture clash. I think, Elizabeth, that's, mm-hmm. what, you're, that's what you're saying there. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. And uh, another factor that came up in the survey is that a majority of strategists think companies are increasingly reluctant to take a stand on either a political issue or a controversial anything that could be perceived as controversial due to fear of audience backlash. And that's not misguided. We have had such a potent example this year with Bud Light. But what can the strategy teams do to persuade companies to get behind a campaign that they might perceive as risky, but you as strategists know are going to land with your the consumers you're trying to reach? Yeah, we we did a talk at Stratfest. I actually think it was 2020. Um, I did it with Kofi um, Amugatfried, who is our DoorDash partner. He's the CMO there. Um, And the talk was about how clarity of mission unlocks agility of decision making. And I think often as a strategist, we are the strategic architects, you know, with marketers and helping them figure out, like, what do they stand for? What do they push against? What are the stakes of that stand? Um, and then what does it mean for innovation? What does it mean for their people? What does it, you know, what does it mean for growth, et cetera? Um, and I think that also means like, what does that mean for the issues they take a stand on? I don't know if this is a popular opinion or not, um, but I don't personally think that every brand should take a stand on every issue. Um, if for no other reason, than there's just like not, that, <laughs> there's not enough time in the day, like not because of backlash. Um, and I don't know if I care about what my, you know, jelly thinks about, I was going to think of a really fun, the space race. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, but I care very much about brands that stand for something and have conviction and speak on issues that are tied to that conviction. And so DoorDash actually has this amazing kind of compass that they use to make decisions on what they do and don't speak about. And it is through the lens of their mission. And so some of it is like, okay, we know what we stand for and we stand against. That's the latitude and longitude of the brand world we've created. Um, Like part of their story is they were founded by an immigrant. And so like, you know, they will, they will, and they have speak up on issues of immigration because it's tied to their founding because a lot of restaurant owners are immigrants and a lot of restaurant workers are immigrants. And so that one makes a lot of sense for them. Um, When the war in Ukraine started, they did not take a stand on that. And Kofi can walk you through, you know, like why they didn't. It didn't fit the rubric. Um, Whether or not to celebrate Juneteenth as a holiday was one, you know, and he's given this talk at the gathering um, that they decided not to. But he had a reason for why they do and they don't. And I think to me, a rubric for knowing what you stand for and why is really helpful so that you can justify the decisions that you're making. I've heard people compare, um, you know, the Bud Light controversy with like the Nike controversy with Colin Kaepernick. And, you know, it was always interesting to me. I I don't work with Nike. We we do work with Anheuser-Busch. We're we're an AB roster agency. Um, But I have to imagine that somebody at Nike had done the math and was like, for every pair of sneakers that gets burned, 50 pairs of sneakers, you know, are going to get bought. Um, And they were sourcing their growth towards youth culture, towards more progressive culture. And I don't know how risky that was, really, to be honest. Like, I think it was smart, but I don't know that I think it was risky. Um, Bud Light was different. I think, you know, 
not necessarily commenting on, on how they've navigated it at large, but I don't know that there was a growth audience of limousine liberals who were going to like love the, the message and, and switch from martinis to Bud Light. That's probably (laughs) not the right metaphor. Um, but I, I think, I think knowing what you stand for, knowing who your audience is and speaking on the issues that make sense um, eliminate some of that. It will never be risk-free. And honestly, like in the culture war environment that we're in right now, you can take something really small, like an influencer activation and a political action committee can set an army of people on Twitter to turn it into a big, big problem. I don't know how you avoid that, to be honest, because it is so well-funded and so strategic. Um, and it can create a backlash where there may not have otherwise been one. But by and large, I think if you're taking a stand on issues that are very core to the business you're in, the people you serve, and like what you believe is a brand, at least you can have a real conversation with people if they exactly. don't like it. And they may not like where you landed, but I think they're more likely to respect how you got there. Yeah, I think you're right. It's so key that brands really understand what value proposition consumers assume of them and what they're putting out there, right? That's a, it's a two-way conversation, your brand, with what consumers think of it. Tomas, do you have any advice? Well, I think it's um when you think of the of the evolution of stakeholder capitalism, right? As a, as a kind of construct where you look at your employees, your shareholders, your consumers on a kind of equal footing. Um, it's, it's still ultimately, you know, you deliver value for all those stakeholders by generating money as an organization, ultimately. Even even with examples like Airbnb and others that are kind of best examples of that. Um so I think it kind of comes down to like if as a, as a marketing organization, if your role is to generate that growth, right, for, for an organization, some of this pullback, I think, is actually quite helpful because I think it helps to reset um, with marketing teams, like, what's what's our mission here? Are we the ethical compass of an organization? Or are we here to generate growth for for the business? And I think that is just a really good foundational piece of work to do. And then as part of that growth, I think it's definitely a calculus, right, between, like, what matters to your employees, you know, because I think that really matters as well. Um, you know, what's your CEO's point of view on a topic, for instance, you know, can dissuade some employees to work from an organization and, and vice versa. Um, and also what matters to your consumer. And I think over the last few years, we as an, as an industry probably got carried away with, you know, what purpose can do in terms of creating competitive advantage for for a brand and a business. Um, and I think it's good to reflect on it. I mean, in the way that Elizabeth describes it, where is this really kind of, you know, creating a long-term path for a business? Is this part of the value, value proposition? Um, so some of this is, of course, painful to watch, I think, to see, what, to, see what's, to see what's happening. But I think it's creating, I think, really good and constructive conversation in the industry. Mm-hmm. Do either of you have any favorite campaigns uh, that you think demonstrate strategic bravery? I mean, I'll tell you, so I think, uh, like, speaking of bad, I actually love the bring, bring back the bad, um, little, like, strategic judo move, like, during the Qatar World Cup, where, you know, like, two days before the start of the event, they kind of told everyone, that, like, okay, actually, like, you cannot drink the beer in the stadiums. And instead, you know, they, they, they come, the agency turned it into, like, Widen in Africa, and made it into, um, like, let's bring the bad to the winning team's country. And I think it's it creating, I think, like, using a massive set, setback that could have created a massive kind of brand issue um, into an opportunity to engage your audience and kind of expand, you know, what the, what the brand can mean around the world. So I really like that because it's mm-hmm. in the moment. And I think it also probably speaks to an organization that can make decisions quite quickly. And mm-hmm. I think many companies really, really struggle with it. They kind of overanalyze themselves into a paralysis. 
I always go back to like, was it um, Voltaire who said to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. And I think there's like mm-hmm. such a tendency to want to avoid criticism that we don't realize that like by the time you get to the end, you've said nothing and done nothing and you've become nothing. You're the 84% that's wallpaper. You're the 84%. <laughs> like that's how we get there. And I think with almost all great work, I don't know that there's one campaign, but I do think it's through line of almost everything I admire. There's a kernel of something that you can look at it and you're like, oh man, somebody made a choice there. They could have pulled back on the casting or they could have pulled back on the music. You can always tell there's a moment where they, they could have pulled back and instead they went in. And that's one of the things we talk about in the article. I think often if you look at the body of collective work, it does feel like a lot of brands are playing not to lose. They're not playing mm-hmm. to win. And there's a key difference. Like you see great work and you're like, they went for it. You know, like mm-hmm. they went they went for the win. They didn't pull the punch. Um, and I think if we want more great work and more effective work, we need that to happen at every level, at every agency, in every marketing organization. So another finding that came out of the work survey was that about 60% of briefs from clients had no KPIs or objectives around related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and 50% had no KPIs or objectives related to sustainability. And DEI and sustainability are two areas that get a lot of discussion, but it appears it's not getting a lot of action. So I'm wondering what can strategist teams do to address these issues or convince marketers that it's okay to touch on these issues? This topic, I think, is very important to me. And it's it's interesting to see the evolution of the debate, right, in the U.S. and around the world as well. Um, And it certainly strikes me as a kind of place where we are quite paralyzed, because I think there's there's definitely a gap between intentions and actions and commitments and actual actual impact. Um, I'll point to a partnership that we just launched um, at DDB with Parlay for the Oceans. It's a sustainability uh, expert that kind of specializes in product innovation and kind of scalable solutions. And the reason I kind of went after the partnership and kind of brought them into the agency is because I think we're past the world of like, let's have a summer beach cleanup campaign or, you know, let's do a comms project because we, we know that this issue matters to our audience. And I think what's required, because I think consumers know better. I think they've kind of, they've, they've seen, and I think they've seen through it. And I think they, they demand better, better work. And I think where we need to move to is scalable, um, systemic solutions when it comes to how products are developed, how they're marketed, um, where they shop for consumers at what price. Um, so I think to have an equitable value exchange with your, with your target audience. And that is just very hard. Because I think more often than not, as a marketer, you have to engage cross-functional teams to get any 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 kind of this, any kind of project like that off the ground. And I think that's just tough for organizations. So I think what it requires of marketers and their agencies is to assume a slightly bigger role in their organization, where we are simply not simply executing a sustainability campaign, but we're trying to rally and create an alliance inside an organization to to create to create broader change. And again, I think in this environment of trying to generate growth in a low growth environment, that it, where we're trying to optimize the hell out of what it is small that we have, I think people are running out of time. Because I think, again, I think not, not only is it complex, but I think it takes time in many instances. It's funny, when you, when you first started talking, um, before you got to the DEI and sustainability part, you were like, strategists are getting briefs without KPIs. And I was like, 
Yep. Like, <laughs> oh, just in general, no KPIs. <laughs> sometimes it's no KPIs at all. I, I did get, um, I think two years ago, the worst input brief I've ever received. The audience said everyone. The key message said, you tell me. And the timing said yesterday. Oh, my uh, goodness. We politely parted ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, I bring that story up because on one hand, going back to the theme of like empathy, right? Like bravery in some ways requires either deep conviction or psychological safety. And as we've already started to touch on, we're in an environment where it doesn't feel like there's much safety. Like it feels like brain risk is everywhere. It feels like a recession is always eminent. It feels like, you know, your job is on the line. Like none of that is conducive to an environment where people are making like brave long-term choices. Like they're all conducive to an environment where people are choosing like short-term security and, and scarcity. And so I think, you know, having empathy and, and, and saying, okay, in many cases, I won't say all cases, you share these values. Hopefully if we're working together, it's because we share values. And I know that's something that we do in the new business process. I'm assuming a lot of agencies do because we want partners who are like-minded, like shared philosophy, shared values, shared commitments. Um, my observation is I think the intentions gap is real. I think you have a lot of organizations that are like, we want to make a meaningful difference in sustainability, but we're not where we need to be. And we don't know how to get from where we are to where we're going. And we have all these hurdles in the way, right? Um, and I think the same is very true of sustainability. On the DEI front, I think one thing that has been disheartening to me in some cases um, is I, I have seen a bit of a trend, and I'm, I'm not necessarily speaking about our clients, but I think seeing it in the new business landscape in general, where you will hear organizations say, we're not where we need to be on diversity, so the agency needs to be diverse for us. Um, and to be clear, like we have a commitment to diversity because it's a core value at the center of our agency, but you can't outsource diversity. Like that has to be a commitment that is being, that's going from a value to, to an operationalized reality inside your organization. And so part of me is like, if there aren't DEI KPIs on the brief, I think that's a reflection of a larger kind of question around like, where does this live and how do we operationalize it and how do we integrate it? you know, into our way of doing business versus having it be one more thing we're solving for. But I do think in some cases, these problems feel so large and intersectional and the tyranny of the urgent is so powerful mm -hmm. that it's not surprising they're not showing up on briefs. I think there's a real lack of kind of actionable strategy forward. You know, this kind of leads me into what was my next question, which is uh, another finding was that more than half of strategists responded saying that working on upstream business problems is the biggest opportunity to bring value to brands. And I think your answer is on how do we address sustainability? How do we address DEI? Those are really much bigger upstream business problems. So how do you get strategists at the table to be the ones advising clients on those growth opportunities or taking the big swing of maybe rethinking the entire some entire aspect of how you do business or mm -hmm. i mean look i'll tell you i think um i think we believe just from where, where i sit here at ddb that creativity is the most powerful force in business and i personally wholeheartedly believe that you cannot invent your future out of a spreadsheet as a leader you have to believe where the business should go where the brand should go and when i think of ours and my personally kind of most trusted cmo ceo relationships those leaders 
like to surround themselves with perspectives that I think in aggregate give them a sense of where they should go. And I think coming from a creative field, I think we have a unique perspective that someone from legal or management consulting background would not have. And I think we simply need to own it. I think we have the tools from data standpoint. We have the creative skills as well. We simply need to be confident in saying this matters. It's not just a little campaign idea or like a little activation that we have for you. This can actually change your business. Um, but I think it's a partnership. I think it's a partnership based on trust. And to my earlier comment on emotion, I think creativity can feel emotional, therefore risky, therefore you have to be brave to to go for it. But I think it's it, it's when you look at the best performing brands in the world, that's exactly what they do. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that. I, I agree with that. I would say when we are helping marketers craft a brand, like what they stand for, the brand world they're building, um, I try really hard to integrate their their purpose and their CSR into the same stream. Because my observation is if it's a bolt-on, if it's an adjacency, it's always like at best it'll get made, but it'll feel like a one-off. At worst, it'll get deprioritized and it'll never see the light of day. And I think the more you can get to these questions of like mission and purpose, and by that, I don't just mean like CSR, but being like, okay, if you stand for, you know, X, Y, Z, then what is your duty of care for sustainability from that place, from that lens? If this consumer counts on you to help them make their budget work every month, then, you know, what does that require of you in terms of who you employ and how you execute and operate? So I do think the more that we can integrate these streams rather than making them feel like, you know, 12 more things that are being juggled in an increasingly complex marketing mix where budgets are always getting smaller, the higher the odds that, that A, something will happen, there will be four motion, it will get made, and also that it will feel true and authentic and directional um, I think that the two other things quickly, one would be like, you know, if, if you are a, a CEO still very much beholden to Milton Freeman, if you want to keep your job for another quarter, the more things can be tied to growth and the business case, the better. Um, and so I do think that, you know, the more that creative agencies can point to a growth audience, an opportunity size, an upside, the more that we can remind the board and the C-suite that marketing is a growth driver and not a cost center. Um, I think you you take things that are altruistic, but also often doing the right thing is right for the business. And I think making the business case can also be helpful for the CMO being set up to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's uh, very well said. Another finding we had was that um, helping brands navigate new cultural landscapes was cited by almost half of respondents as one of the biggest opportunities for strategist teams. Do you agree that new cultural landscapes are one of our biggest opportunities? The question that comes to mind is new to who? <laughs> <laughs> um, I do very much believe that you have to impact culture to impact sales by and large, and that culture is, is a channel, not just a communication. Culture has always come from the margins. If you just look at social movements, if you look at art, if you look at anything, culture has always come from the margins where resources are constrained. You don't know the rules, so you break them. Um, there's less you know, institution, and then the margins bear witness to the center. And for most of the history you know, of mass culture, I'm saying that in air quotes, um, the institutions, the center just appropriated the margins. And I think one of the things that's different is like now we can see the receipts, like we can see the origins of where trends 
come from. And we don't look upon it like super kindly as a culture um, if an institution approach, appropriates where culture is being made. And so I would actually argue that like, this isn't new. I think what is new is um, the level of like, frankly, responsibility that marketers are now aware of that like culture is a very, very powerful channel and um, we need to handle it in a way that is honoring and generative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think um, one of the other themes that came out of the survey was that uh, 76% of strategists told us that they want a greater emphasis on qualitative research. It's necessary to understand niche and influential communities, but on the flip side, most respondents said they have very little time to conduct qualitative in-person research to help get to those cultural insights. And 11% say they don't do any qualitative research. How do we find time to do more of that research? I think it's like, I think it's interesting to think about it in context of the word insight, right? I think, especially in the creative, creative field, I think we have this like mythical idea that there's one statement that just unlocks everything and it gives you true insight into into the audience. But I think it's a lot more than that. I think it's um, where do you grow? How do you differentiate between monoculture and your specific audience where you can absolutely dominate as a brand? Um, and I don't think we have a good enough of a story as an industry to say, actually, that's the purpose of qualitative research. It's not, you know, hey, I want to like talk to two or three people just to get, you know, validate my thinking. It is to understand where growth is going to come from. Um, and I don't think we build our process that way. Um, I don't think we have a we have muscle to bake it into our bake it bake into our scopes and our engagements. But to me it's absolutely absolutely fundamental um, in kind of truly understanding the world of someone and their media diet and you know where the the client branding question comes in. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I love that you highlighted like an insight as a specific example. Um I remember the the CSO at Martin when I was kind of growing up in my 20s um, had a quote outside his door. Um, it was like a, by a German philosopher that said, the task is not to see what no one else has seen, but to think what no one else has thought about that which everyone sees. And I think like that is what a strategist does. Like that is what it, an insight is. It's not to be the first one to figure out that millennial moms are busy. Like, like it is crafting that in a, such a way that is revelatory. And like my definition of an insight, the insights are incredibly rare and they take time. And some of that time is tied to research, but honestly, some of that time is tied to thinking, just having the like mental space to push past the obvious and to really think about like, what is the deeper truth behind the statistic, the quote, the thought, et cetera. Um, and those are rare and they're great unlockers of creativity when you get to them. But I think in the spirit of efficiency, and I'm not just talking about efficiency of media by like efficiency of getting the work done, efficiency of, you know, doing more executions with fewer bodies with the same or smaller scopes. We've engineered all the fat out of the process, the time to think and soak. Um, and I, I think one of the results of that is not always, but often you do see a lot more disposable insights. And then you see a lot more disposable thinking. My favorite definition of an insight is that it has to do two things. On one hand, I have to say, oh my gosh, that's so true. It has to be resonant. 
Um, but also, oh my gosh, but I've never thought about it like that before. It has to be revelatory. Like, is it resonant and revelatory? And sometimes you get something that's like interesting, but it's like so vague. It doesn't, it doesn't hit you as being this like profound real truth. And other times you get something that it's like, yeah, it's true. Millennial moms are busy or the more connected we are, the less connected we feel. Um, but it's not revelatory. And I think for strategists in particular, it's easy to forget in the like, can you brief in two hours? I need another deck. Can we get an executive summary version? Um, all of which is real and, and has value that actually the highest value we can give is the unlock that comes with reframing sometimes the information that they have in a way that that shows them something they hadn't seen before that elucidates a path um, and unlocks creativity. And I actually think that it's less about having time for qualitative research, though I think qualitative is valuable. But whether the insights are coming from qualitative or IDIs, ethnographies, you know, cultural monitoring, chat GPT, et cetera, like to me, it's the next step of how do you take those insights or those that information um, and and really unlock something deeper. My favorite example of this ever, I did not work on this one. So it's a, a shout to a strategist named Ellie. Um, but she was working on a pitch for a clothing brand and it was, they catered to older women. Um, and like 97% of the company w- was, you know, female in terms of everything from Salesforce to executives. Um, and she was doing kind of your classic four C's brief. And the insight, the cultural insight was that uh, men age like wine and women age like milk. And the center of the brief said society treats women like a depreciating asset. And I read it and I was just like, oh, like it's so true and it's so revelatory. You know, like if we had given you stats about the fact that older actresses have a hard time getting cast or like, you know, we could have given you a ton of information. But that reframe, like men age like wine and women age like milk, you hear that and like your soul groans and you know exactly what that means, you know? And I Mm -hmm. think that's the piece that I wish planners had more time for. Like that's the piece that I think we're missing. That's terrific. Beautiful. Elizabeth, um, we talk about um, if you don't feel it, nothing will happen, right? And I think what you just said now, I think that's exactly what a good insight can do. Beautiful. Yeah. Now I'm worried about being old milk though. So thanks, Elizabeth. <laughs> I believe this is changing. I believe culture is changing. That brief was written seven years ago. Um, yeah. Just to wrap up, any guidance that you would give to strategy teams on how to embed strategic bravery in their day-to-day? I think that discipline is designed to be brave. But I think we often get distracted and lack the focus. And if you can find time individually to reflect on your craft, reflect on your powers and commit, um, you can be brave every day. Because ultimately, the job of strategy is to help our clients make choices that allow them to win. And I think too often, we simply try to get through the day because there's too much to get done. I think value the time that you, that you put into yourself, because I think the tools are there to help you be brave every day. I, I also think bravery begets bravery. Like We see that in categories all the time. You'll see sleepy categories where interesting work has never been done. And one player of the category with nothing to lose, like does something brave and it raises the stakes for the whole category. You know, um, I think the same is true of agencies. I think the same is true of planners. And so I do think whether it's having people like inside the building 
IRL or URL, um, or honestly, friends and peers in the industry at other agencies and at other marketers that you're having these conversations with. I think it helps us stay on course. Because like, Tamash, you, you said something I think really important in the same way that our clients in some cases have these values, but are, are distracted. It's the tyranny, the urgent, it's the things they have to do to get through the day. We are subject to the same, the same busyness. Like in talking about the whole hybrid work culture, I saw some data that 70% of workers say their meeting load has gone up 70% since going hybrid. And so we have to do so many more meetings just to get to the same task that we did before. Like the busyness is choking out what the cost consultants did not. Um, and so I think it's easy. I, I'm guilty of this sometimes to, to find yourself in the middle of the process and be like, wait, how did I get here? What were we trying to do? Where did we start? And where were mm-hmm. we trying to go? And having other people that you can kind of like gut check with and, and keep your moorings, I think is really, really valuable because it's definitely a marathon and not a sprint. Oh, so that is a great place to end. So I thank you both for joining me to explore these incredibly important issues. And I'm feeling braver already. So thank you. Work's 2023 Future of Strategy report is available now for work subscribers. And you can read the piece from Elizabeth and Tomash there. That's it for today. If you don't already, remember to subscribe to Work Podcast so you never miss an episode. And thanks for listening.